Hello and welcome to Makers.dev episode number 25. Chris, how are you doing, my friend? What's going I on? Am, I'm doing all right. Uh, this week kind of flew by. It feels like it has not been a week since we recorded last, but I'm doing okay. I agree, as will be evident by my progress report on the things I uh, said I was going to get done, but we will uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, as you, me and the adoring fans of this contest rooting for you want you to win want a progress update last week you said there was this whole backlog of stuff that you realized like the fun the foundation of what you did had to be redone what's the what's the status of that what's going on yeah so uh, i'm not quite back to where i was uh so and i'm currently sitting in fourth place with my bad um predictions i would say and i am back to a score so that score is like 2.4 uh, lower is better and my current score is like 2.9 which puts me in like 10th place i think so not quite back to where i was but still i'm doing i'm doing pretty good and i'm on a, an okay trajectory um also there's a very interesting thread on the competition the competition ends in two weeks and um it turns out so it it's against the rules to hand label test data which makes sense you don't want like a human going and hand labeling data you want it to be done with an algorithm mm. but there is a step before the labeling of the test data um in this competition which you could call labeling the training data, which is okay, you know, like like adding extra labels or whatever to the training data. Mm -hmm. But because the training and test data are taken from the same sort of uh, floors, like for lo location, uh, it could probably also be called labeling the test data. Um, and it turns out that basically all of the top teams are doing this. And so there, there is currently a, a big comment thread asking for like the moderators to weigh in on this issue. Um, if this is allowed, then it will boost my score significantly. So... Um, <laughs> So I'm kind of rooting for it to be allowed because all the top teams are already doing it, and uh, and I'm not. My 2.9 score is not doing that, um, and yeah. I think I could probably drop to 1.9 or something if I could do it. So, interesting. We'll see. We'll see. Hold on. Okay. Out. So there's there's a pool of test data that you can label one step before the final labeling. Sort of. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm, yeah, so the test and the, the test and the train data are taken from the same general pool of data, yeah. and they all come from the same like floors of shopping malls. Um, and basically, in the test data or in the training data, sorry, so this is the training data. You can basically see holes where you know that there has to be some data. And so what you can do is you can say uh, there's got to be a test point right here because uh, um, there's like holes in the training data. You're not looking at the test data to determine that. You're looking at the training data, and like there's holes in the training data. Yes. Um, and right now, my 2.9 score doesn't take advantage of that fact uh, because I thought it was against the rules, <laughs> but it might not be. So we'll see. Okay. So the, the the test data that you're given to train your algorithm on will show a little person walking down the hallway, and I imagine you you know what their phone is, and then oh, they pop out of existence, and then oh, 20 meters later, they pop back into existence. So one could sort infer of. <laughs> that is 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 that sort accurate? of yeah yeah okay. yeah. So yes, exactly. There's basically a hole in the in the training data, and so you, there's there's probably a test data set that goes in there that fits in there. Okay, interesting. So, is is this cheating? Is like if you were designing a real world algorithm trying to figure out, actually trying to categorize these things? Uh, is this like we talked about last week, closer to? Uh, you know, taking a bunch of Instagram pictures and then leaving your Airbnb <laughs> the day after, or is it? Is, is this a tool that's actually helping you solve the deeper problem? Uh, it's definitely a gray area, which is why people are asking the moderators, basically. Like, like there's people, you know, there's 
there's like Kaggle employees and then the person running the competition that they've tagged and they haven't weighed in yet, but hopefully they do. Cause, um, yeah, if they don't, then what I'll probably do, which is what the first place team said that they're going to do probably is, uh, one submission doing it and one submission not doing it. And then if it comes out later that it's been against the rules to do it, then they can say, okay, well, cause you're allowed two submissions in the end. Um, Got it. then you can say, well, my really good submission that that was with doing it. You said it was against the rules after the fact, uh, here's my other submission. So hopefully they weigh in before that. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. I have a question about how the submissions work. Are you submitting your neural net or do you just submit the categorizations? Because there was, there was a private pool of data that we talked about that, uh, you, yeah. you can't see. It's, it's different for each competition. For this competition, you just submit your data, um, okay. which means you have access to all the test data. Um, but to get around problems that are just like this, uh, in several contests, you actually submit your, your actual neural network or whatever you're using to train, mm -hmm. and then, um, or to test, I mean, uh, and then you don't see the test data at all, and they run your code, your actual code. Um, for this competition, though, like, there are reasons why that's very difficult for this type of data, hmm. and so they just didn't do that for this. But Kaggle in general is moving more and more towards um, what they call code contests, where you actually submit your code to run to get around issues just like this. How can they test against data that you don't see then? They, they tell you what it's going to, they give you a sample of it. Um, yes. And then they tell you what it's going to look like. And your code has to, you know, accept, like it's, it says, you know, there's going to be a directory here full of data that looks like this. Yes. Read the directory and, and tell us what's in it. Okay. And then just like on the last day, they give you another pool of new data and you run it then. Yep. And then you yep. couldn't possibly be doing it by hand. Okay. Yep. Nice. How fun. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck. I'm excited. <laughs> Thanks. We'll see. I hope the, uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I, it, it sounds like it would be advantageous for you to be able to do this uh, hand labeling one step before. So uh, I guess I'm hoping that happens. Yep. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and sweet. that's basically what I did. Well, that's basically what I did all week, I was going to say, um, because I am now very invested <laughs> in this competition. Uh, so I had to try to at least get back to where I was. I'm cool. nearly there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. How about you? How, what'd you get up to this week? Chris, I had a week. I had, <laughs> I had a hell of a week. I, uh, started last week after the episode with just terrible seasonal allergies. Uh, and something I, that's very difficult for me to balance during the summer in Texas is like, uh, I'm very allergic to grass pollen, which grows a whole bunch outside right now. Uh, I'm going to go on a journey. It's going to come back. It's it's all going to make sense. Right. Uh, very allergic to grass pollen. Uh, so that makes it very difficult to go outside. Uh, currently, all of the indoor spaces that I have access to have cats. Another thing I'm allergic to is cats. Uh, when I was in Austin, I got exposed to a whole bunch of cedar smoke, which just wrecked my lungs. Uh, I had forgotten that something I am low-level allergic to is cedar. So... I, from that cedar smoke exposure, got a cold and that made everything worse and then like amplified these other allergens. And then to try to escape into a place where my lungs could recover, I couldn't go outside because there's grass pollen and I couldn't go inside because the indoor spaces I had access to had cats. And it was just like the worst my allergies had ever been. And uh, I'm sure like the cold made it worse, like that, that didn't help. Um, and 
I just went through this existential crisis of like, my God, the, the world is inhospitable to me right now. Like I, I cannot breathe and this is awful. And I don't know, like last summer I saw this by uh, going up to Ohio where the type of grass pollen that I'm allergic to doesn't grow. Uh, and that seemed to solve it, but like, I want to hang out with my family this summer. And also I'm dating a woman who lives in Dallas, uh, who does not yet have location, uh, flexibility. And I was just going crazy trying to think of like, what do I do? Do I get a better HEPA filter? And I'm also trying to keep CO2 low. And so I can't just seal myself in this room and filter all the air because now the CO2 is going to go high. Uh, and then also, uh, VOCs are a thing, volatile organic compounds, and I'm trying to keep those low. And for that, I need air filtering in from outside. But if I just open a window and I know what you're thinking, you could just filter air from outside, just put a HEPA filter <laughs> and then a fan. And I tried that. The problem is in Texas in the summer, it's like a million degrees and it's very mm. humid. So now the humidity and temperature is coming in. Oh my gosh. And so I went down this rabbit hole of like, I think I need to build my own house. <laughs> and <laughs> I think I need to use a thing called an energy recovery unit, which uh, can take in fresh air from the outside, but then equalize the, the temperature and the, the humidity. Uh, and I think that is what I'm going to do, but something happened, uh, four nights ago, as I'm just there wallowing in my self pity of like, how awful is this, that my allergies are so bad that like, it's difficult to breathe. I was eating some Thai food with Sarah. And I remember thinking as I am slurping on the Tom Kaga. This is unusually bland. And I, I've been to this restaurant before and like, I remember it being much more flavorful than this. And I take a, a bite of my uh, red curry. <laughs> you're, you're nodding, I think. Yep. You might know the punchline of the story. Uh, and, I see it uh, coming. Uh, and also with the red curry, I'm like, hmm, this, they didn't make this as well as they usually do. This, so I'm, I'm like adding salt to it. And okay, that, that improves it a little bit. Uh, and I taste the Tom Kaga and I'm like, they forgot to put lemongrass in this. They like, I can taste the sourness, but it's not the lemongrassy richness of the, of the flavor. Uh, and Sarah says something about, oh, the, you know, we need to, uh, wet vacuum this hallway because my cat peed in it and you can smell the cat pee. And I was like, that doesn't smell like cat pee. What are you talking about? And then it hits me <laughs> and I'm like, yep. oh my God, <laughs> hold on a second. <laughs> and so I go and I, I'm smelling the, the Tom Kaga soup and it smells like nothing. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And I run over to uh, the this bag of cat litter that just had this really, really strong, like astringent, pungent smell. And I go and I know how far away I can be from it without it like physically hurting my nose. And I try that and I smell nothing. And I go a little closer and I smell nothing. <laughs> and I have this sigh of relief of like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't have debilitating allergies. I just have COVID. <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> so the next day I went to go get a test at CVS. You can just get this for free. And, uh, the day after that, they, uh, give me back my result. I'm like, yes, I have COVID and I feel so much better than I thought I was going to feel, uh, if I had found out I had COVID because like, huh. it was, and, and for me, like the, the whole thing wasn't bad. It felt like a, a medium cold, but like I've had colds before and I wasn't expecting that compounding with allergies to be like as bad as it was. I was like, oh man, I, I just like couldn't be outside because the allergies would just come out. And, uh, so, you know, that's nice because I'll be better in about two weeks. But that's also launched me into this new project of figuring out how to build tiny houses. I want to build my own house. Uh, it looks super fun. I think there's a lot of fun things I could do with like suffering from allergies. I can, I can just tune this space to have perfect airflow and 
have very low CO2 and I can build it with all these materials that have very little VOCs. Normally plywood is made with formaldehyde binding and so I can buy the really expensive plywood that doesn't have formaldehyde. And uh, I'm very excited about that and I'm learning a whole bunch about info products, uh, diving into the space of like buying a bunch of books and watching a bunch of videos about uh, tiny houses. So that's that was my week. <laughs> and, uh, I also did other stuff too, which is amazing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that is a week. Uh, yeah, it, it was um, a week. Yeah, I. How uh, are you doing? Okay, how are you feeling? I'm fine. <laughs> Other than All like, right. it's it's very inconvenient. Uh, you know, being sick and uh, there's still this Timothy grass outside. Uh, is it sucks. So, uh, I'm trying to go on socially distanced walks and like I have the mask on and I'm not touching anything and uh, staying as far away from people as I can. Uh, and if I like the mask is for me and them. Uh, the yeah. it's it's keeping Timothy grass pollen out, and it's hopefully keeping uh, these COVID particles that I'm infected with in. Uh, and I'm finding a new balance for it. Uh, it's still very inconvenient, and like the the spaces that I'm in are not ideal yet, which is pushing me towards building these tiny houses. But uh, we're we're doing better and better every day, and uh, not being able to smell is wild. That's it's weird. It's, I, uh, it's, of all the senses to lose, I think I would choose smell. It's, it's a very interesting experience. Huh. Well, yeah, uh, I'm happy your allergies aren't as bad as you thought they were. Um, <laughs> thank you. I'm sorry that you got, that got COVID, goodness. Uh, yeah. Um, I imagine that takes over whenever I get like sick, um, like, like with something serious, it usually takes over my entire like thought process. And so, um, I can imagine that like, yeah, all of your your thoughts about uh, business related things probably went out the window this week. Uh, that's my guess. One would think. However, uh, I really like doing work, and one of the yeah. things that came up was this problem that I've had forever. Of uh, when you're trying to make a new Final Cut Pro project, it sucks. There's like five different steps you have to do. You have to open Final Cut Pro and then say file new library, and there's no keyboard shortcut for that, which bugs the hell out of me. And then you have to say where you want to save it, and I like to save the new library in the folder. It's this whole process. And uh, I had an idea that I could use Final Cut Pro XML to uh, automatically like make a script so that I could just highlight the files uh, and say with either an automator action or a command line plugin like generate this new Final Cut Pro XML document that has references to these files. Uh, and then open it, which will create the new library. And while I was sitting there uh, in bed, just lamenting my existence, uh, the, the final puzzle piece clicked into place. And I was like, oh, I could, I could make the XML this way, and that would probably solve this problem I've been stuck on. Uh, and in the span of about three hours, I built the thing, I recorded a video about it, and I published it in a place where people can pay me money to buy it. Uh, and I was so happy about that. What a what a great little microcosm of like, okay, this is all of the steps of making a business. I made a valuable thing and I uh, did a piece of marketing about it. Uh, and last time I checked, this page had had 115 views and exactly $0 in revenue. But <laughs> I, am, I am proud of uh, that I went through the process and it's cool that I uh, have a, a system for doing that now. Like, the process for making the video was really slick and that was really easy and i have a place now where i can sell digital products uh so i felt really cool about that uh that's cool do you have a hot take on that is is there is there another easy place i posted it in like this group i'm a part of for making videos and didn't have anyone buy it from that 
uh, I posted the video on Twitter and YouTube. Uh, I guess I could send it to my email list. Is, is there other low-hanging fruit that I'm missing here? Um, well, that's what I was going to ask. How'd you get your 115 uh, um, subscribers? Or not subscribers, visits. Um, usually for stuff like this, um, if it's not applicable, like I don't see this as being necessarily you know applicable to your general Twitter audience. Um, it, posting it in, in your video form is good, but um, you uh, usually for stuff like this, I, I would recommend writing content uh, around the problem that it's trying to solve um, and then submitting that content places um, or tweeting about the content or whatever. Um, mm. That's what I've seen work pretty well. Like, you know, boy, don't you have this problem, you know, and here are the 15 steps uh, and then at the bottom, you know, or you can buy my thing, mm. uh, you know, stuff like that um, or content generally around the problem. Um, and then the, the pro for that is if you get ranked on Google, then, you know, six months later, you might start getting sales. Um, so that's kind of a longer term play too. So it's like a content plus then you can post that content in your groups or your, you know, wherever. Um, so that's what I'd say, I suppose. That's an excellent suggestion. And I know exactly the piece of content I would want to do on that. Um, when I was taking Ali Abdal's part-time YouTuber course, which I have talked about all the time on this podcast, it's so good. Something that I was struck by that I'd never seen before was a method of organizing your projects because Final Cut Pro sort of wants you to keep everything in a library. And the word library, you think, oh, this is my library of all of my content. But if you treat it like that, your hard drive fills up so fast and there's no way to say, okay, I'm done with project A, so let me just offload all the resources for project A onto this external hard drive and then only have projects B and C on my hard drive and then flow them that way. If it's a library, the library keeps track of all this cruft and junk of like these intermediate files and stuff that you just can't get rid of. So the tactic that I saw Ali Abdal use is that you make a separate library for each project. And then each library is the self-contained thing. And yes, it has the cruft of each uh, of the intermediate files and things, but that's contained to the project. So I think the piece of content I would make is something along the lines of how to organize your Final Cut Pro projects, maybe so it doesn't fill up your hard drive. Uh, there's another piece of content I think I could write that would be something like how to uh, free up hard drive space from Final Cut Pro. That's probably a thing people are Googling. Oh, I wonder if I could look on Ahrefs for like what the actual problems, how yeah. people are wording these problems and then title the content like that. Yeah. Or even mm. just a uh, Google autocomplete is pretty good for that too. So like start typing the problem and then just look at the autocomplete suggestions. Um, I mean, if you have access to Ahrefs then yeah, use that, but, uh, Ahrefs costs money. So <laughs> yes, $15 for the first 15 days, I think. Last oh, is it? I thought it was like $150. I thought it was really expensive. It is when you're actually paying for it, but uh, okay. you only really need Ahrefs for like a day <laughs> to do it. Got it. Like it's not changing that much. You, you don't really need to keep track of it. So the last time I did it, I just bought their $15 or 15 days thing. And then, okay, what's my list of all the things I needed to do keyword research on and then uh, go back through. For listeners who don't know, Ahrefs is fantastic. It's a keyword search tool that lets you see search traffic and related search terms and what the top ranking pages are for any of the things people are Googling. So in this 30 by 500 mentality, trying to figure out what is the pain people are experiencing? How, what are the words that they use to solve their problems? Ahrefs is a great tool to figure out what are the things people are Googling, which is a very close proxy for what are the, what is the pain people are experiencing and how are they wording the, pain how, how do they describe that problem and then from that you you can go directly into okay i'll make a blog post titled 
how to empty my hard drive because Final Cut Pro is filling it up because that's the thing people are Googling. So it's an invaluable tool in this. I'm excited to do this because like I have very little skin in the game. This is a thing that it took me, you know, an hour to make. And I think it'll be a fun little way to practice more marketing stuff and pushing that forward. So that'll feel good without without feeling like a, a holistic failure if it fails. It's I have less personal stake in this. My identity is not tied up in, you know, I am not the Final Cut Pro library generation guy. Uh, this is just a thing I'm doing for fun. It's just yeah. fun playing around with marketing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a few things kind of like that that I've want, been interested in making too. Um, maybe I'll try something like that too and we can kind of compare notes. Um, I There are things that I've kind of wanted to make which aren't, like they aren't even related to a lot of what my, you know, t- Twitter audience or, or mailing list or whatever is about, but, you know, things I could probably make in a day or two and put them online uh, and then, you know, practice some marketing and try to drive some sales. Um, like, yeah, one time, you know, digital product sales kind of things. So, uh, yeah, I should probably do more of that too. I think it's something that, you know, it's a little barrier to entry, like you said. And, you know, either you generate some cash, which is neat, or you learn what not to do, which is also okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And you're flexing the muscles of how to go through this process. Is there one that comes to mind that we could pull up on the slab and uh next steps? I can get back to you on that. I, I, I have a <laughs> list of probably 100. And so, I yeah, I would want to, I mean, maybe not 100, maybe 30 really good ones, I would say. Um, Got it. So, uh yeah, maybe I'll pick one or two and uh, and get your hot takes next time. I'm excited to talk about it next week. Along these lines, there is a question I would love to bounce off of you that then uh, talking about this question has led me to a exciting new place. Uh, the question is, in trying to balance where you have money saved, uh, do you put it towards... Uh, do you, do you put it in stocks? Do you put it in crypto? Do you invest it in your business? Um, I've been chewing on it, just trying to figure out a way to uh, balance how it makes sense to, to put money in those places. And how do I measure a uh, dollar towards this thing is worth this much and a dollar towards this thing is this, uh, this other amount? How much is it worth to raise your MRR by $1,000? Obviously, you would pay $1,000 to raise your MRR in your business by $1,000 because you're going to make that back in the first month. And maybe you could say, well, I don't need to recoup this investment for another year. So maybe you would pay $12,000 to raise MRR by $1,000. Or maybe you could say, well, I own the business. And so if I increase MRR by $1,000, I've increased YRR by $12,000 and at a 3x valuation, which is pretty conservative, I've raised the value of the business by $36,000. So now I could say raising MRR by $1,000 is worth the $12,000 I'm going to make in the, next, in the next year, plus the $36,000 that now my net worth is raised by. So raising MRR by $1,000 is kind of worth $48,000. And that sounds preposterous that you could spend $48,000 to raise your MRR by $1,000. My gosh, you could hire five people. <laughs> to go out and knock on doors and just randomly knock on doors and say, hey, would you like this product? And they don't have to be right that many times uh, for the top tier of file inbox. I have some plans that cost $500 a month. So if I can spend $48,000 to sell two of those licenses, 
does that make sense? <laughs> that seems like I would run out of cash very quickly. Uh, and another dimension of this that I hadn't considered until recently is money in the stock market is much more liquid. If I invest that $48,000 in the stock market, I could next week decide, you know what, I would actually like to have that in cash instead. And I could pull that out. And now it's not making money from being in the stock market, but now I have it in cash and I can use it to buy a tiny home and have a complicated ERV system. Um, so that's a, that's another aspect of this that I haven't quite figured out how it fits in is like liquidity is less if it's in the business. Um, how do you think about that? What is that dumb that you could spend $48,000 to raise MRR by a thousand dollars? What, what am I missing here? Yeah, no. So there are a lot of different aspects to it. Um, kind of like you pointed out. Um, so one is, uh, yeah, so we'll touch on sort of cash flow first. So uh, one is liquidity, like you like you talked about. Um, founders will generally find that they have a lot of their personal wealth tied up in their business, which can make you very nervous. <laughs> um, so like uh, that, this is why like founders take money off the table during funding rounds and stuff like that. It's not like they want to get out of business. They just, you know, if you're worth, you know, $10 million on paper, um, but you only have $1,000 in the bank, then that can feel very bad. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so that's one thing to consider. Um, the other one is, uh, or several other ones are, um, yeah, your math is generally correct. I would say like, um, it is a kind of preposterous how much, uh, you, you know, value can, your assess value can be worth. Um, uh, you have to account for churn though, which, um, I didn't hear about. So if you get yes. two accounts and then in three months, one of them churns, uh, then you've only gotten one account really, um, especially for the end value of the business. And so, uh, definitely, definitely account for churn. Um, the, uh, other one to think of, uh, the other several things to think of are, um, yes, if you do one thing and you spend $48,000 to get a thousand dollars in MRR and they don't churn, right. Then that's great. Uh, what happens if you do it again and it doesn't work at all? Um, that now you've spent $48,000 twice to get two accounts. Um, and so you really have to, uh, make sure whatever you're doing is repeatable, um, in order to, to crank up money spending like that. Um, uh, let's see what else. Uh, yeah, like you said, uh, you can waste all your money very quickly. Um, and then if you, what, you know, what if you don't sell your business for 10 years, right? Um, uh, and then the people end up churning after two years and you don't see it because like the accounts you had before were better. So your churn numbers were lower and the accounts that you get by knocking on doors churn faster. Um, so that's something to consider. So basically what I'm trying to say is, uh, it can be worth, uh, $48,000 to get two accounts, um, or maybe not. And you have to figure that out based on all these other factors. Um, and I think that's why it's really difficult. Oh, my internet just, uh, popped out for a second. We're back. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Yes. Good. Uh, churn is a factor in this. I think, I think you could factor that in by saying what's the LTV of the customer. Uh, it's so yes, if, if you have a customer, well, let's say, let's say you have, you know, a thousand customers at a dollar per month and they're churning at 5%. You can now factor that in of, okay, after the first month, you'll only have, you're, you're going to lose $50 of those customers. Uh, and so the value of that thousand dollars MRR, uh, exponentially decays. Okay. Yeah. It, okay. And there's, there's nice formulas for this. If you've never looked them up. Um, I think lifetime value is something like MRR divided by churn, uh, as a percentage. Um, okay. 
uh, I, I could be could be wrong about that, but yeah, l- look up all these formulas. Uh, you got lifetime value, you got you know cost to acquire. Um, based on that, you got those pretty standard SAS formulas. Cool. Uh, MRR divided by churn makes sense because if churn was 100%, then it would just be whatever it is for the first month. And if it was 1%, then it would take, what, 100 months for them to churn? Yeah, I think for, for like everything to decay, that makes sense. Uh, cool. Okay, risk also, an important factor in this. So uh, if, you know, if you're placing bets that have a 50% chance of succeeding, you would want to discount that then by 50%. So... Uh, the the expected value of playing that game, if you say okay, a thousand dollars, MRR is worth forty eight thousand dollars to me, but each time I'm placing this bet, it only has a fifty percent chance of winning. Okay, well now that forty eight thousand dollars has to be cut in half, and now it's twenty four thousand dollars is the maximum you could spend, um, and then accounting for churn, I don't know. Let's cut it in half again. <laughs> I, th- this is getting fuzzy. I think I think this. Uh, you, you can do specific. actual math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there's actual uh, math you can do for this. Yes. I want to I want to really pin this down. I think this is a long blog post that is in the works. I would love to figure out exactly how much I can be spending because intuitively I'm thinking it's way more than I thought it was going to be. Like in the worst case, I think I could absolutely justify spending like $3,000 for another uh $1,000 of MRR cuz I'm going to make that back in 3 months and even if that only works half the time, okay, now I'm spending $6,000 for every $1,000 of MRR. Uh, that still absolutely makes sense. I'm going to make that back in six months, which is much less than the year. Uh, so as long as I'm managing liquidity, as long as I don't have all of my assets in this business and I don't only have $1,000 in the bank, uh, it feels like I can be much more aggressive with spending money on my business. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's the a general- weird thought. Yeah, the general numbers I've heard, uh, total rule of thumb. But if if your business is generally sort of mature, like your churn is generally sort of stabilized, then 12 to 18 months MRR is about what you can acquire a customer for before it becomes like profitable for you. Um, but there's lots of variables that we you know already talked about. So, yeah. Cool. So far, I think I've only been spending time and like in very limited cases of, okay, I'm going to get an accountant because, ooh, taxes are scary. I don't want to do that. And that's a broken mindset. I need to be thinking of this much more as an investment. Like, no, yeah. I, I can be putting a substantial amount of money in this. And as long as that's getting a return, as long as I'm playing an expected value positive game, uh, I can just keep doing that. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it what, one like company handicap it myself. One company I know who's written a lot about this is called ProfitWell. Um, yes. Yeah. So they have written so, many blog posts about expected value for all sorts of things. And they have the added advantage of um, lot data like from lots and lots of SaaS companies because they have a free product and they basically uh, can aggregate the data across, you know, everyone who uses that free product. Um, so yeah, I would, I would look at some of their blog posts about this. I'm sure they have some that are pretty good. Fantastic. Perhaps some will be linked in the show notes, uh, but who knows? <laughs> Along these lines, what are your thoughts on micro acquire? Have you been on this site? Do you know what this is? Um, is this like the Flippa alternative? I may have seen it once. Is that what that is? It's yeah, very similar to Flippa. Uh, I haven't been on Flippa in a while. I don't know if I, the the deals on this site might be smaller, but I've it's things like on a couple of times. But yeah, it'll be like um, a Shopify plugin that makes a hundred dollars a month that they're selling for like two thousand dollars. And I really want to do at least one of these and just experience 
what it's like, like what is the buying process like? And also I wanna have something like this in my life that's a piece of software that's making money that I have no personal attachment with that I'm really just thinking about as an asset. Uh, and if I do it sort of strategically of, this is a thing that I bought that has something to do with file inbox, or it's a thing that has something to do with video editing or that sort of thing. I could see that having a compounding effect in this, this empire I'm building of uh, all this other software. And I think that'll help me tune also what MRR is worth. If I'm willing to spend $2,000 on a business that makes $100 a month, that means I should be more than willing to spend $2,000 raising MRR by $100 a month on my main business. Uh, is that something you would consider doing? What, how, it, how do you think about software as investments? Uh, I think it'd be kind of neat um, to give it a try. Um, an another thing that you may not have even thought about is, well, you sort of did, um, if it's related to, you know, file inbox or any of your other stuff, um, and it gets a lot of traffic. So like the traffic is valuable also, um, it's like if it's a content kind of site or content heavy site, um, and then you start linking that to file inbox now, you know, and file inbox back to that. Now both SEO, you know, the value of SEO goes up for both. Um, Absolutely. So, so that's interesting as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it'd be worth it. Uh, I try to get on there. I think, do you have to register before you can see the listings or something? Um, I think you can see the listings, but you can't contact the people until oh, okay. you've bought a um, plan and the plan is like $250 or something. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't done much thought about that myself, but it'd be, I've had the same thought that I want, you know, I want a few like things that are sort of, yeah, completely separate from my personality, um, that I run sort of, you know, pseudo anonymously or whatever, but, um, it'd be very interesting like as a marketing exercise to try to grow those. Yeah. An additional benefit I think I would get from these is putting myself in the mindset of an investor and thinking of what makes a business valuable just as the brass tax of the numbers. I don't really care what the business does. I just want to know it has this much MRR and it's, it has this much traffic and here's the work and the labor that needs to be put into it. And here's how much that costs. Because I think practicing being in that mindset would put me in a much better position for my main business of being able to evaluate these things more clearly of like, yes, I have this great idea for a feature that I'm in love with and I want to implement, but putting my business hat on, what's the actual impact of that? What, how, does this change the value of my business to an investor? How does this change the value of this asset that is my business? And I think this would be a relatively cheap way to do that uh, and to force myself into that mentality. Um, yeah, uh, I think it'd be super valuable for that. Uh, I'm reminded of, so when I first got out of school, uh, I had a resume, right? And I thought it was fine, I thought it was good. And I shopped it around, right? And I got a job. Okay, eventually I started hiring people and I realized that resumes are terrible generally <laughs> like people write terrible <laughs> resumes um and then i was like i don't do that and i look back at mine and went oh i do do some of those things <laughs> um and so like yeah coming at it from the other side like e every time you view a listing and you're like oh i would never do that uh, i would write that down you know and make yes. sure you don't do that if you go and sell your business um same thing with yeah resumes when you start looking at resumes then you can go back and fix your own um yeah same thing I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And then that would, I think, put me in a much better position if I ever wanted to sell File Inbox, like we talked about a few episodes ago. I would have been exposed to this marketplace from the opposite side. And I'd be able to make a much better pitch of something like, don't you hate it when the listing <laughs> right. you're looking at 
<laughs> you know, forgot this entire category of thing and uh, you feel like you're going to get burned because the numbers aren't accurate. Well, I sure have been through that same thing and uh, I'm tailoring it for the other side of the market now. Neat. Uh, that's all I have to talk about. <laughs> this is a, an unusually short episode. Uh, anything else itching at your brain? Uh, no, we'll, uh, the contest, my cow contest ends in two weeks. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how we do. Sounds good. I wish you the best of luck and I will see you next week. Goodbye. All right. See you next week. Bye.